Hello again. In class today and tomorrow, we'll be talking Seneca, the Stoics, and a bit of Schopenhauer. First of all, On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. The majority of mortals complain bitterly of the spitefulness of nature because we're born for a brief span of life, because even this space that has been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all save a very few find life at an end just when they're getting ready to live. Nor is it merely the common herd and the unthinking crowd that bemoan what is as men deem it an universal ill. The same feeling has called forth complaint also from men who were famous. It was this that made the greatest of physicians exclaim that life is short, art is long. It was this that led Aristotle, while expostulating with nature, to enter an indictment most unbecoming to a wise man, that in point of age she has shown such favor to animals that they drag out five or ten lifetimes, but that a much shorter limit is fixed for man, though he is born for so many and such great achievements. It is not that we have a short space of time, but that we waste much of it. Life is long enough, and it has been given in sufficiently generous measure to allow the accomplishment of the very greatest things if the whole of it is well invested. But when it is squandered in luxury and carelessness, when it is devoted to no good end, forced at last by the ultimate necessity, we perceive that it has passed away before we were aware that it was passing. So it is. The life we receive is not short, but we make it so. Nor do we have any lack of it, but are wasteful of it, just as great and princely wealth is scattered in a moment when it comes into the hands of a bad owner, while wealth however limited, if it is entrusted to a good guardian, increases by use. So our life is amply long for him who orders it properly. And that's just the beginning of his very excellent essay, and I wish somebody had uh, pointed me to it when I was an undergraduate. I might have gotten uh, a little more done by now, maybe. Schopenhauer, though, would say, no, you wouldn't. Probably you wouldn't, because your nature is what it is. And uh, so, in happiness, we'll be asking about that, looking at Schopenhauer on the wisdom of life. Happiness lies in our sensibility, he said, but Frederick Lenoir reads him as denying that there's anything any of us can really do to alter the particular sensibility or temperamental receptivity to happiness embedded in our own deepest nature. If that's so, one wonders why Schopenhauer devoted so much attention to the subject, as in his Wisdom of Life, wherein he wrote, I shall speak of the wisdom of life in the common meaning of the term as the art of ordering our lives so as to obtain the greatest possible amount of pleasure and success, an art, the theory of which may be called eudaimonology, for it teaches us how to lead a happy existence. Such an existence might perhaps be defined as one which, looked at from a purely objective point of view, or rather after cool and mature reflection, for the question necessarily involves subjective considerations, would be decidedly preferable to non-existence, implying that we should cling to it for its own sake and not merely from the fear of death, and further that we should never like it to come to an end. Now whether human life corresponds or could possibly correspond to this conception of existence, is a question to which, as is well known, my philosophical system returns a negative answer. On the eudaimonistic hypothesis, however, the question must be answered in the affirmative, and I have shown in the second volume of my chief work 
that this hypothesis is based upon a fundamental mistake. Accordingly, in elaborating the scheme of a happy existence, I have had to make a complete surrender of the higher metaphysical and ethical standpoint to which my own theories lead. And everything I shall say here will, to some extent, rest upon a compromise, insofar, that is, as I take the common standpoint of every day and embrace the error which is at the bottom of it. My remarks, therefore, will possess only a qualified value, for the very word eudaimonology is a euphemism. Further, I make no claims to completeness, partly because the subject is inexhaustible, and partly because I should otherwise have to say over again what has been already said by others. The only book composed, as far as I remember, with a like purpose to that which animates this collection of aphorisms is Cardan's De Utilitate Ex Adversus Capienda, which is well worth reading and may be used to supplement the present work. Aristotle, it is true, has a few words on eudaimonology in the fifth chapter of his first book of the rhetoric, but what he says does not come to very much. As compilation is not my business, I have made no use of these predecessors, more especially because in the process of compiling individuality of view is lost. And individuality of view is the kernel of works of this kind. In general, indeed, the wise in all ages have always said the same thing, and the fools, who at, the, at all times form the immense majority, have in their way, too, acted alike and done just the opposite, and so it will continue. For, as Voltaire says, we shall leave this world as foolish and as wicked as we found it on our arrival. And uh, Schopenhauer continues. It's one of his more entertaining uh, light works. Um, the question, of course, for Voltaire and Schopenhauer, and for us, more importantly, for we the living, is not whether we shall live, leave the world as foolish as we found it, but whether we ourselves shall have grown during our span of time. In a world as will and representation, happiness also gets considerable attention. For instance, he says, Childhood is the time of innocence and happiness, the paradise of life, the lost Eden, on which we look longingly back through the whole remaining course of our life. But the basis of that happiness is that in childhood our whole existence lies much more in knowing than in willing, a condition which is also supported from without by the novelty of all objects. Hence, in the morning sunshine of life, the world lies before us so fresh, so magically gleaming, so attractive. The small desires, the weak inclinations, and trifling cares of childhood are only a weak counterpoise to that predominance of intellectual activity. The innocent and clear glance of children at which we revive ourselves and which sometimes in particular cases reaches the sublime contemplative expression with which Raphael has glorified his cherubs is to be explained from what has been said. Accordingly, the mental powers develop much earlier than the needs they are destined to serve, and here, as everywhere, nature proceeds very designedly. For in this time of predominating intelligence, the man collects a great store of knowledge for future wants, which at the time are foreign to him. Therefore, his intellect, now unceasingly active, eagerly apprehends all phenomena, broods over them, and stores them up carefully for the coming time, like the bees who gather a great deal more honey than they can consume in anticipation of future need. Certainly what a man acquires of insight and knowledge up to the age of puberty is taken as a whole more than all that he afterwards learns, however learned he may become, 
for it is the foundation of all human knowledge. Up till the same time, plasticity predominates in the child's body, and later, by a metastasis, its forces throw themselves into the system of generation. And thus, with puberty, the sexual passion appears, and now, little by little, the will gains the upper hand. Then, childhood, which is prevailingly theoretical and desirous of learning, is followed by the restless, now stormy, now melancholy period of youth, which afterwards passes into the vigorous and earnest age of manhood. We recall, of course, how Schopenhauer helped us begin our semester in happiness class with the denial that our hunt for happiness could possibly succeed. What disturbs and depresses young people is the hunt for happiness on the firm assumption that it must be met with in life, etc. We'll talk about it Tuesday. Talk to you later.